Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when we come together once a month just to celebrate what the Lord has done for us through communion, through taking of the bread, the drinking of the cup, you know, we proclaim his sacrifice, says the words. We proclaim that we belong to him. That is such a privilege. I don't know what aspirations you have in your life, but what aspirations are higher than to belong with, to the Lord and to be in him now and for eternity? And so I, I pray that that just continues to infuse our souls here this morning as we gather for this time in his word. And if you're, some of you are here for the first time, we're so glad that you're here. And so just for your benefit, kind of let you know where we are. We're in part three of a six-part series from the book of Nehemiah. It's called the Nehemiah Project. If you know something about Nehemiah, you know that he was called by God to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls that had been torn down. They'd been torn down by a foreign power, by the Babylonians, in response to the disobedience that they had before their Lord. They had not been living faithfully. And as, I, as we've been exploring this series and as I've been preparing particularly for this message, I just found myself in a time of prayer saying, Lord, help us really to understand. Help us to know. Help us to grab onto the walls that you want us to be rebuilding in our lives. Maybe that's something that you just know. There's been some destruction that, that you've had a hand in in your life, maybe in your job, maybe just the way that you're not perfectly shaped like your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so that humanness has sort of crept in. And that humanness has torn down walls, has broken down walls. And those are the ones that God wants you to rebuild. When we talk about rebuilding, we're not excluding the fact that some of you are really in touch with something that God wants to do new around you, maybe at your job, maybe in your neighborhood, but there's something that's on your heart, there's some group, some person that really needs the Lord's love, His protection, His mercy, His justice, I don't know what it is, and that's really enlivened your soul. You want to build something there. But my prayer has been, Lord, show each of us what that is that you want us to build or to rebuild. Don't let this series pass you by as just another series. Okay, it's a book of the Bible, that's great. But really connect with what God has for you. Pray. We, we said when we started this series that this is a time of prayer for us as a church leadership. This needs to be a time of prayer for us as individuals. Say, Lord, show me. Just like you showed Nehemiah, you're very clear. Nehemiah heard the news that the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed, and it broke his heart. So what is breaking our heart? What is breaking your heart? Let's get in touch with that. As we do, today we're actually with Nehemiah in Jerusalem. He, the, the preparation that God has for him when he was back in the court of the Persians has now essentially been complete. He's been commissioned. He's now in Jerusalem. And we're going to be looking at, at the back half of chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 3 to, to look at principles about how God is using Nehemiah to rebuild walls so that we can apply them to our lives. And just by way of outline, there's a few things that we're going to see. We're going to see that when Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, he actually surveys the damage. He doesn't presume to know, even though he knows what he's called to do, he doesn't know, presume to know that he knows exactly what needs to be done until he goes and has a look around the damage of the walls. As we read, we'll find he's pretty particular about how he does that. So we have to survey the damage. Once we understand what needs to be done, once we understand what needs to be rebuilt, then we need to select a team of people. Lord knows that none of us who have walls to rebuild are called to build it by ourselves. 
But God, out of his mercy and just out of necessity, will provide us with a team of people. Who's on that team? How do you, how do you select them? How do you work with them? We're going to look at that. And finally, as, as we look at chapter 3, you'll start to see that the team is going to work and they can actually see progress. This is the third point. Look at the progress. See that when you're living out God's plan, when you start to rebuild the things that he has for you, that you start to work with the people that he's provided you, you'll actually see results. You'll see progress. And that's meant to be an encouragement. So let's look at chapter 2. Let's see what Nehemiah does when he's in Jerusalem. If you've got your Bibles, I'm reading out of the NIV. I'm starting in verse 11, and I'm going to verse 16 for now. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah, verse 11 to 16. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate, toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Father, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for putting on his heart what had been breaking yours. But I pray that this series would move each of us, not leave us the same, not leave us as people that are just trying to connect with you without any reference to what you want us to rebuild. Lord, thank you that you're, you are the rebuilder of things in our lives, of things in our community, of things in this church. Give us the wisdom. Give us the boldness. Give us the courage that we need at all those levels. Now, Lord, may your word go forth in each of our hearts today. Speak what needs to be spoken through me. Thank you, Jesus. To your glory be it. Amen. So if you listen to what was just read, you see that what is Nehemiah doing? He is actually surveying the broken down walls. He's there for three days. We're not told what he's doing for three days, but he's in Jerusalem. Then he decides to inspect the walls by night. Just takes a few guys. He's the only one with either a donkey or a horse, and he's surveying the walls. And as you could recall from the passage, he's pretty particular. He's going in the valley gate. There's, he's going by the dung gate. He's very specific as to the reference points that are on his heart. He's trying to look at all the damage. And some, some damage was greater than others. Some parts of that wall were just flat destroyed. Others had just pieces that were missing. Those were the walls. All the gates, the actual entryways to the walls, had been burned with fire. And even though it's night, and we're presuming the visibility isn't exactly great, he's still able to get a handle on the kind of work that needs to be done. He's still able to assess the damage. And out of that assessment of damage will come the, the formulation of a plan and what team members are going to go where and what materials that he needs. You recall that from last week he actually had a building permit from the king and he had kind of his Home Depot pass that he could get lumber and he was going to use all these things. But where to use them? You don't know where to rebuild until you start assessing where the damage is. 
And so that's what Nehemiah is doing. And that's, that's true in our lives, isn't it? When, when we want to start building something, when we want to start repairing something, we need to assess damage. If you happen to injure yourself somehow and you go to the doctor, let's assume you kind of trip uh, coming out of your car, you trip on a curb, you fall down, you, you, know, you sprain your knee, maybe you scrape your elbow, breaking your fall, you go to the doctor, and what's the doctor going to do? She's going to give you an examination. She's going to say, where's the damage? Before she knows what to prescribe, uh, whether ice pack, pain meds, sling, whatever, she needs to make an assessment about what happened. If you went to the doctor and she said, wow, you look like you kind of got banged up, hey, take a few aspirin. If it gets worse, give me a call. Some of you guys might have a health plan like that. If you do, you need to change it. But, but we, if we had somebody that started to treat us before they made an assessment, be like, that's nuts. I'm not going back there. And so when we're going to start build, repairing the things in our life, when we're going to start looking and say, Lord, what do you want me to look at? What do you want me to do? We need to make an assessment. Now, what is that? I mean, you could be before the Lord and you could say, Father, show me. And again, that's what we've been praying. But you hopefully are looking to the Word of God and seeing that in various, various places throughout His Word, particularly in the New Testament, there's catalogs, if you will, of things that God might want our attention about. Here's one such catalog out of Galatians. This is Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21. This is Paul talking to the Galatians, and he's talking about the, what's the catalog. These are the catalog of things that offend God. When we offend God, we end up hurting other people. And so in, in these three verses, beginning in verse 19, he says this, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there are many things in our lives that can tear down walls. This is just a small catalog of what some of those things are. And we talked about sort of when you assess damage, by the way, I'm not just saying that you look at uh, confession and repentance. Remember in the first part of this series, we saw Nehemiah in his prayer closet praying to the Lord, and as part of his prayer, he's actually confessing. He's confessing his sins. And when you confess to the Lord, you say, Lord, I am sorry for offending you. I'm sorry for the hurt that I've caused other people. So we see Nehemiah do that. He confesses his own sins. When you confess, then you need to repent. When you repent, you're aligning your will once again with God's. You're saying, Lord, your way is the right way, not my way. I've been going, doing my own thing for far too long, but Lord, I want to repent, which means I want to line up with what I know your word tells me, how to live. So confession, repentance, is that what we mean when we talk about survey the damage? No, survey the damage is really the next step that you take. By surveying the damage, look at one of the examples coming out of that Galatians 5, specifically verse 20. Fits of rage, and we talked about this previously. If you have an anger issue, if, if your fuse goes off too quickly, if, if you are just thin-skinned, somebody says something and you blow up, you might, you need to confess that, you need to acknowledge that, you need to repent, but then you need to survey the damage. What does that look like? That looks like going to the people that have been on the receiving end of your short fuse, your temper, and not only saying, I'm sorry, but say, let me understand how that's impacted you. 
When I raise my voice, when I blow up, how are you hearing that? How are you receiving that? If you've got kids that are in that environment, you know, and they feel they have to walk on eggshells because of dad or something that's going on, you need to go to your kids at some point and just say, help me understand how you're responding to this. Now, I'm not talking about good parental correction or discipline. I'm talking about where you know that, God, that you're a little over the top, that you're a little bit beyond what would be good parental discipline. And you're just, you're just too volatile. You have to go, when you talk about assessing the damage, you go and you say, how is this impacting you? I need to know that. I need to know if I've broken down the walls of trust. Because somebody might forgive you. You know, they might say, yeah, I'm sorry that you're doing that. It's not good. It's not good for us. It's not a healthy environment. If it gets really bad, then you start hearing people use the toxic word. So they can forgive you, but they don't necessarily have the trust that you're going to be a different person yet, do they? They need to see that trust built bit by bit, that you kind of put deposits back in the trust bank, if you will, day by day, little by little, as you show that you're a changed person, as you show that fits of rage no longer control you. It, you know, Paul often talks about putting aside the old man, fits of rage, anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, and putting on the new man. This is the fruit of the Spirit, the new man, whose, mark, whose life is characterized by peace, by love, by obedience, by kindness. As they see more of the new man and less of the old, then trust comes back into that. So surveying the damage is saying, how bad is it in your life? So th that's just a personal example. You could, uh, there's another one we read about was what? Selfish ambition. Where does that show up? That shows up a lot in the workplace. How many of us, if we're really honest, in our places of work are thinking, man, I can get to that next level. I can get to that pay rise. I can get to that promotion. And I know how it works around here. It's kind of a little bit dog-eat-dog. -dog. It's a little bit sharp elbows. That guy can't code worth beans. Good thing I can. And so I'm, or maybe he can code better than me, but I'll get on his team, and then maybe I get some of the credit for some of the stuff he's doing. If we're, if we're consumed with selfish ambition, we start to use other people for our ends. Jesus dealt with selfish ambition, didn't he? Jesus had two of the most ambitious guys in recorded history as his disciples, James and John, who in a breathtaking account went to him and said, hey, we would like the world's greatest promotion, that when you come into your glory, one of us is on your left, the other's on your right, and that's a great deal for us, James and John. And one, one account says that mom got into the act. They sent, you know, one says his mother went in and made the request. World's best promotion for all eternity, the left and right of Jesus Christ. And how did that selfish ambition impact the disciples? This is in Mark 10. It said, the account says, they became indignant. They're like, what? You, you, we did not just see you, two guys, and we got some other adjectives for you guys. Go up to Jesus and say, can we sit at your right and your left? Selfish ambition was, a, was already causing dissension within the 12 apostles at that moment. Jesus, being the wise man that he is, takes them all aside and uses it as a teachable moment. He says, let me tell you about who's great in the kingdom of God. It's not the one who you know, gets to the next run, steps over somebody else. But it's the one who's a servant of all, who makes himself a slave to all. So there's no room for selfish ambition. 
If that's sort of what's motivating you, you've got to bring that to the Lord. You've got to realize that that actually causes a destruction within the team that you're on. And you've got to say, Lord, how do you want me to, how do you want me to help? How do you want me to deal with that? What, survey the damage. What's going on in my workplace because of the way I am? Am I contributing to the, to the mission of the work, of the organization that I'm a part of? Or am I trying to make it all about me? So I don't know what application it has for you specifically, what walls need to be repaired in your personal life or your family or your place of work. But one thing, don't assume that there's not an issue. Now, I hope that you're hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you. But don't assume there's not a problem. G.K. Chesterton said that the one spiritual disease that's out there is thinking that one is quite well. We're not quite well. We've got some issue that we need to be working on. So I hope we're in touch with that. Another reason that we don't actually survey damage, we don't get on our mount like Nehemiah does and look at all the, all the places where we've hurt others and what the impact has been, is that frankly, if we're really honest, we're afraid to take that look. We're afraid to find out that if we start surveying what's going on in our family, we're not the parent that we really think we are. Or we're not the great you know, manager that we tell ourselves on the way to work. You're a great manager as you drive along. And we realize we're not as great as we think we are. Or if you're a ministry leader, you realize, I'm just not living in the power of the Holy Spirit like I ought to be, as consistently. And so we don't want to oftentimes survey the damage of what's going on because we're afraid to take a look. We're afraid of what we might find. Tony Evans has a book for men called No More Excuses. And one of the chapters is no more sifting among the rubble, is what he calls it. And he talks about the example of Peter. The Peter who, who said, in so many words, another guy, I don't know if his selfish ambition is certainly had a fair amount of ego going on, but he said, I'm not like these other guys. Lord, you even recognize that. You said, you're a Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. You know, and you're like, you give me special assignments and duties, and I'm one of your inner guys. I'm, I'm like, there's the crew, but then there's the inner crew. I'm on the inner crew. I belong on the inner crew. Thank you, Jesus. You know what you're doing when you put me there. So he's got some kind of healthy ego going. And so it's so big that he tells the Lord that all these other guys might deny you, but I won't deny you. That, you know, it sounds like things are going to start getting rough around here. This is essentially how the, the, the Last Supper ends, when Jesus is with his disciples on the night that he's betrayed. They start, Peter says, I know it's going to get rough, but I'm with you. And of course he denies him. The Lord who loved him. The Lord that Peter said, I love you. At the moment when Jesus needed the love of Peter the most, at the deepest point of Jesus' need, when he is being beaten, he's on trial, he's about to be crucified. And at that moment that, G that Peter has to actually display that, which he would have said, I'll go, you know, he said, I'll go to my death for you. The moment when that opportunity presented itself, that challenge was in front of him. You know the story. You know that he punts. You know that he, he denies his Lord. And so he doesn't want to take an, a look at himself. When Tony Evans is talking to men and said, don't look amongst the rubble, he's talking to guys who know that they have messed up so bad that there's no way that God can rebuild what he'd intended in their life. That somehow they disqualified themselves from the Lord's love or his rebuilding in their life or his restorative power. 
And he says that's just sifting amongst the rubble. That's sitting down in your pile of bricks and just like throwing rocks. Remember when you were a kid, you just like sometimes sitting around doing nothing, go to a construction site if you grew up in the city like I did, just throwing stuff around. Not building, not nothing, just sitting amongst the rubble. This is what Tony Evans says, men do. And this is what he says, when you get in touch with what, how Jesus restored Peter, how he rebuilt Peter, you, you can't, that's not an option. There's no way that you can just sit there and let that happen. But notice how Jesus restores him. If you know the text, John 21, he says, do you love me? He asks him this three times. He doesn't parade all his Peter's failings in front of him. They're like, oh yeah, now we're catching fish together. Now we're all buddies again. Doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't even bring Peter back to that most agonizing moment. But he gets in touch with that place in Peter that Peter knew was always where he wanted to live and where he hopes to live again, and that is in love with Jesus, manifesting love for Christ by living for him. Feed my sheep. Jesus says, if you love me, feed my sheep. He asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter responds, you know I love you. And as proof of that love, he is saying in so many words to Peter, then do what I designed you to do. He's saying through Nehemiah to Jerusalem, be the city that I created you to be. Just having your walls rebuilt is sort of a, a precursor. It's a foretaste of what I'll really be doing with Jerusalem when the new Jerusalem comes down. When he's rebuilding our walls, don't, don't think that he doesn't have a plan. He's actually restoring you and in many cases showing you something completely new. Maybe some of you got touched by what Keith shared earlier where he says, maybe you're part of that group that God actually wants to send to North Africa, Northeast Africa. You don't know that yet. Uh, Keith has an interesting story. I mean, I hope you take time to go talk to him after this. I just know a little bit about it, but a lot of his, his heart got started to get broken for people that did not know Jesus through a class that is called Perspectives. It's a perspective on the rest of the world. We kind of grew up in a Judeo-Christian culture for the most part, but there's a whole part of the world that never did. What's the perspective, God's perspective, on that part of the world? Now, Keith has, can fill you in on many more details, but that's about as much as I recall. And there's been other people whose lives have been changed in a way that they could never foresee just because they allowed God to build something new or rebuild something in their life. So don't think that there isn't something that God wants you to do. Don't be afraid to take a look. Let him lead you. Let him guide you. When, when, you, when, when you look to survey the damage, don't do it by yourself. Nehemiah didn't go by himself. Don't you go by yourself. Take the Lord with you. One of the reasons we're hanging back is it was painful enough the first time. We don't want to go through that. Good news. You don't have to go through it all by yourself. You can take the Lord. Isaiah 42, 16 says this. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. Don't be afraid to survey damage. Let the light of the Lord shine on the darkness that you want to keep hidden. It is the only way that you begin to know what kind of repairs he wants to make. The only way that you can move forward in the plan that he has for you. When you're with Jesus, it's not that scary. When you're with Jesus, where's the darkness? When you're with the light. 
So go with him. Write down Isaiah 42, 16. If you're afraid to take a look, don't be afraid anymore. But know that that's the way to do it. Before you know what you can rebuild, you've got to see how bad the damage is, where you've impacted that. Before you know what to build just from the start, from scratch, you need to know how, how great that need is. Do that with the Lord's help. So that's the first principle. Survey the damage. The second one, as I said, is select your team. Nehemiah didn't do this by himself. Nehemiah wasn't called to do this by himself. Some of you are doing home projects by yourself. Is that really wise? Ask your spouse. How long has it been taking? How, you know, if, if I was doing a home project, it would take me at least three times as long, cost me twice as much money, and be like, like a fraction of the professional result that I could get if I actually hired some of you guys that actually know what you're doing out there. Nehemiah is not trying to do this by himself. Let's look. He actually gets a team around him. In, in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, says this. Then I, Nehemiah speaking, then I said to them, these are the nobles and the officials and the priests that were mentioned earlier. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now you start to see Nehemiah getting the people that he needs to start helping him. If we're going to rebuild what's been destroyed, if we're going to start something new that needs to be done, we're not doing this on our own. We need people around us. God will bring a team around you. Sometimes we don't even know where to begin. Vicki and I have a, an acquaintance, a friend, a young woman who came with her husband to the Bay Area for work, for a job, and uh, they'd had, served the Lord. But over time, he started to walk away from the Lord. And over time, he started to walk away from her and their young daughter. And so now she finds herself in a place she'd never expected to be. Call our friend Amy. Amy finds herself in a place divorced, without her husband, trying to raise a daughter, now needing to find a job. Her walls had been broken down. She was now, when you have broken down walls, you know, as we've been saying, you lack security. You're more vulnerable. You're in a place you don't want to be. You need walls that are being rebuilt. You need things that are going to be reconstructed so that you can be in that healthy spot that God has intended you to be. How did God start to rebuild Amy's walls? Well, he started to bring a team of people around her. First, he had her in a good church where there was solid teaching and wonderful worship so that each Sunday she could be in the presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, as that old hymn says, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You come into the presence of God and somehow those big things that you walked in with don't seem as big. It's not that they're less real. They just don't have the order of magnitude that you think they did. Why? Because you're with the almighty and all-powerful God. So she began to see that in her church. She got into, into a small group. She got into a home group. And, and when you're in a home group and you can actually spend the time getting to know one another, doing life together, praying for specific situations, exhorting, encouraging, challenging, she began to see the Lord's real love, real grace in that. She'd been in a group, I think she's been there for years now, and that's just been a place of huge health, walls being rebuilt. In this church, we have a, a ministry, uh, divorce care. When people go through that wall-shattering experience of divorce, 
how do those walls get rebuilt? There's a community of people that are willing to come alongside. There's a team that God has already ordained, He's already selected to be a part of your rebuilding. And some of that has some expertise. You know, you need some people that know what they're doing because there's not only just the emotional thing. What am I going through emotionally? I mean, I'm angry. I'm feeling isolated. I'm feeling lonely. There's the financial piece. I never thought I'd be here, but now there's all kinds of expenses I didn't see. There's a variety of financial management things that I need to consider. What does that look like? There's the practical. There's the spiritual. There's the emotional. I need some help. I need some members on my team. When you're trying to rebuild the walls, you need to ask God, who are you putting on my team? Who is it that you're bringing into my life to help me? And specifically, as you ask that, look for new people. Look for him to bring new folks. Some of us actually resist new people coming into our life. It's like, well, they don't get me. They don't know me. That's okay. Nehemiah is talking to a whole bunch of new people. But what's attracting them and what will attract people to be on your team is to see the work of God going on, in this case, in the walls being rebuilt. They're attracted to the vision of rebuilding the walls that Nehemiah, that God had put on Nehemiah's heart. They're attracted to the, the grace, the favor that Nehemiah has. And they're like, man, God's up to something here. You go to somebody and say, I need some help repairing something. I need some help with, with my anger stuff. I need some help with some selfish ambition. I'm envious. I, I need some help here. And people know that God's working on your life. They'll be attracted to help you. You may be one of those people that are asked. Don't say, well, I don't know if I know you very well. Get to know them. So don't be afraid of new people coming into your life. But when you, God brings team members there, what do you want them to do? How do you actually select members of your team? Let's look at chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 3, and then I'm going to read verses 6 through 11. Because you start to see how Nehemiah uses the people that God brings. Because chapter 3 is all about rebuilding the walls. So chapter 3, verse 3, then jump into verse 6. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hesanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Now verse 6. The Jesanah gate was repaired by Joeda, son of Pesea, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah. Malatia of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephaniah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Hermaph, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hashbaneah, made repairs next to him. Now, we're actually going to have a spelling bee of Jewish names shortly after this. But, you know, but, but it's interesting that Nehemiah lists all these specific people. And with the specific assignments that they're given, the particular portion of the walls or the gates that they're supposed to work on. And we start to learn some things about how God wants us to use team members in, in our life. So here's a couple things really to focus on. What kind of team people, what, what kind of people is God bringing into your world to repair your walls? What kind of team member are you being asked to be possibly by somebody? These are the attributes to look for. First, you're looking for people that are aligned with God's purposes. They have God's agenda for your life in their heart and in their mind, not their own. How many of you are on the receiving end of unasked for advice? 
from family members, maybe, you know, from colleagues, I don't know, people that, they're not aligned with necessarily what God's doing in your life. They're just aligned with their own thinking and what they want to see you do. And some of you have experienced that for years. Some of you are raised with that. Like the mom who introduced her two sons. They're four and six. This is the lawyer and this is the doctor. You know, if God signed off on that, okay. But if he's not signed off on that, if God has a plan and you know what it is, you need to bring team members into your life that are aligned with God's purposes for your life. Just like the nobles and the perfume makers and the goldsmiths. These are people. Why are these guys getting involved in, in the wall rebuilding? Because they're part of the trades guilds. They know that business picks up if they've got some security, if they've got a secure place to transact business. If the walls have been restored, that means they're in less danger from robbers, thieves, marauding armies. So they're on board. Everybody who's rebuilding the wall, and there's government officials that were listed in that passage. There's tradesmen that are listed in that passage. You know, there's other, in other passages, priests are listed. Everybody's got a, a vested interest in doing what God wants. You want team members that are part of God's plan for your life. The second thing that you see from, from this passage is that these are people that are actually committed to the task. They're not just consultants. They're not just phoning it in. But they're, they're putting their, their muscle behind this effort. They're working on the walls. They're working on it so much that, you can, that Nehemiah can actually record the contribution that they're making. He says, these guys built this wall. I like the guy that built the wall right outside his house. That, that's pretty smart. Man, I don't want to really work on this wall project a whole lot, but I can do the part right outside my house. So that's what he's doing. But, but each of these people that are listed are committed to the task that God's called them to. You don't want people just dropping by, just calling it up. You want people walking through you with that season. You want people like Amy's small group who are walking with her month after month, year after year, as she, as she sees the walls of her life rebuilt. And some of you are being recalled. Some of you are walking alongside of people right now. Know that you are pleasing the Lord as you do that. They've asked you to be a part of the team. You're aligned with God's purposes. Man, prioritize the gift that you are in their life, the gift that God has intended you to be. So people are committed to the task, aligned with God's purpose, committed to the task. And finally, team members that are on your team are, are supposed to know what they're to do. When, when somebody comes into your life, you've got to have a place for them. You've got to say, I am so glad you're here. You could build that part of the wall. You could help repair this over here. I want you to work on the gates over there. When God brings people into your life, do you know how you want to use them? Do you know where they fit in what he's doing in your life? Do you know that some people are there just to be a listening ear? Just to be God's vessel of mercy and compassion without judgment? You want them close. Some people are excuse me, really good on practical advice and they can help you with certain things that you need to do. Financial help, for example, in terms of like just making books work or taxes. And if you're not familiar, I don't know what I don't know all the details of Amy's situation, but trying to do all that financial management, there might be people doing very practical things. When God brings you team members, know what you want to do with them. Nehemiah knows exactly where each of these guys is working. He knows exactly what they're going to do, and they're aligned with his purposes. So those are some attributes of good of good team folks. When I talk about Amy's experience, because she's doing this, God is providing her team members, she's using that, what am I really talking about? I'm talking really a description of how God uses the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 
Jesus, or Paul says this, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We all have different gifts, different abilities, different ways that God will use us to do His work, but we are all part of one body. And that's part of God's plan. God wants us to be aligned with His purposes. He wants us to be committed to the work. And He knows exactly where He's going to use us. Man, that should just be like, thank you, Lord. When God wants us to rebuild things, He's providing that. So if you're part of the body, God has you working in that place. God has us as a church family doing, doing things that are going to glorify Him. We can't say that, oh, I'm not a part of this body. But many of us do. Now, now we don't say that, if, you know, if you come in and say, hey, where do you go? I go to ALCF. What, what church are you part of? I'm part of ALCF. But I mean called to a work. What, what does God have you alongside of right now? What, what is he asking you to repair, not only in your personal life, but in the life of this church, in the life of your community, whether that's a small group? What, what repair work are you doing? And sometimes we say, well, I'm not qualified to do that. There's smarter people, more biblical people, people that can do more than I can do. But Paul has an answer for that. In verse 15 of, of chapter 12, he says, Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. In other words, you can't say, because I'm not like that guy, I don't have a role. Pastor Zach has a great illustration. He, he talks about, you know, what if your elbow just decided it wasn't part of the body? You know, it just sort of hangs out here. Now if you're the wrist and you're the hand, and you're like, and if the elbow isn't working, we can't cook, we, we can't get on the keyboard, we can't shoot a basket, all because the elbow isn't doing what the elbow was designed to do, support the rest of the arm that needs to do some work. Some of us think that we're just not a valuable part of the body, but, but Corinthians says that's not true. Corinthians says you may think that you're an elbow, that you're not the head, that you're not the part that people look at, that you don't have a big upfront gift or, or presentation. God says that's not how I made you. But I made you so critical, such a critical part of what I'm doing here. Would you do that? And if we get in touch with that as, as a body here at Abundant Life more and more, if we ask God, Lord, would you use us all the way you're designed to, then we'll see more of his work going on. I talked to a guy who's a growth group leader last Sunday. He's a growth group leader, and he's also serving in our junior high ministry. And one of his prayer requests is like, I need, I, we need help in junior high. I'm the only guy's leader right now. We talk about rebuilding ministries at Abundant Life. We've talked about marriage and family. Our student ministries need help. He, he says, I don't want to have to make a choice. I need somebody. I, I'm thinking, man, remember how critical junior high was when you were a kid? Now, who wants to repeat junior high? Nobody. Part of the reason, you know, there's just, just that age where you're, like, you're, you're asking questions. You're not really sure who you're, who you're becoming. You've got a lot of stuff on your mind and in your heart. When you have an older, if you're a boy, if you've got an older guy who says it's going to be okay, who says this is what the Lord says, who says I'm walking with you, who says I can't look, you know, I look forward to seeing you next week, that's really powerful. It's tremendously shaping for the ways that God wants to shape our young people. But there's somebody out here who needs to join our friend up in junior high and just say, yeah, I'm going I'm to build that part of the wall alongside of you. You know, that, there, there's countless examples that go on out there. So I don't know what, what God is doing in you. 
But I do call that to your attention. When we survey the damage, when we start to select a team to rebuild stuff or start something new, if we're doing it according to God's ways, the third principle starts to materialize, and that is that we see progress. We'll see things in our life that we need to see. We see things in our life that God has planned us to see. We start to see results. We start to see the fruit of our labors. We start to see things paying off the way we'd hoped and we'd been praying about it. This is what Nehemiah is, is, is revealing in chapter 3. He says these guys, he, is, you know, he names them by name, he names them by occupation. These guys are working on these sections of the walls, these gates, and guess what? They're going up. You can actually look and see there's more wall there today than there was yesterday. There's new gates that weren't there. I used to be able to go right through the sheep gate. Now I've got to knock on the door. Why? Because somebody put a door there. It's the, the, you know, there's a gate. There's supposed to be something there to keep the bad guys out and the good guys in. And now I can see that. So when you're doing things the way God wants you to, when you're trying to see walls built up, you'll see progress. It'll be true in your life. It'll be true in this church. Man, I just, I don't know what that looks like for your lives. I don't know really what that looks like for a church. But, but get in touch with that. You've got to ask the Lord. I, I, it, one of the things I love about Nehemiah is it's, it's kind of sparse on details. There's no like, Nehemiah is not holding a vision planning meeting. He's not doing, he's not doing a PowerPoint. But somehow, the, the goal of seeing Jerusalem's walls being rebuilt is animating his soul, is what he's living for, is what he's working at hard with every fiber of his being. And I don't know if he could say, you know, two months from now, six months from now, I see when all of Jerusalem's walls are being rebuilt. We know that he was in a hurry. He builds these walls with his team in 52 days. Part of the reason is he knows he's got opposition. And we didn't read the part in chapter 2 where he always starts to get some naysayers, some doubters, some haters. All these people start to come at him. Pastor Emmanuel in two weeks' time will pick up on that theme when we talk about opposition. There are some people, the enemy does not like it when we're rebuilding walls. Pastor Emmanuel will cover that. But, but Nehemiah is sort of, he's on the clock. He's under the gun. He thinks this has got to happen. So he is focused. If we think three months from now, six months from now, a year from now as a church, what, what fills your heart about rebuilding? What, what gets your mind engaged about something new? Pray for those things. I, I drive around on, on my way here to church, come here during the week. In our neighborhood, in a four-block radius, there are three housing developments that have gone up or are going up. If you look at the details, which I did do, that's over 120 homes right in this area, within walking distance. Is it by accident? Is it by coincidence? It's like, wow, look what happened over there. No, we, we are here for a reason. We've got to go meet our neighbors. Who, uh, who are moving into those 120 homes who have broken down walls that could need some repair, that God might call us to be a part of? Who in those 120 homes is God calling to help us out with the stuff that we need to do? We have a homeless ministry. Are we covering all the homeless when we go out there? I think those that serve on the ministry would say, we could use some more help. Maybe there's some more help coming from those places. But it won't happen unless we say, Lord, are you doing something new in our neighborhood that we need to be a part of? What's breaking your heart for what's going on here in Mountain View or East Palo Alto or Sunnyvale or San Jose? What's breaking your heart that needs to break more of ours? If it's breaking my heart, Lord, give me a sense of what life will look like six months from now, a, a, a year from now, if, if we're being faithful 
if we survey the damage so we know what to build, if, if we start to pray for that team, if we start to move forward together, what progress will we see? And that has, I, that's the prayer exercise for this week. You know how we, we end these, these uh, each of these parts with specific concrete stuff. Here's the ending. Here's what I want each of us to be doing at all levels. Like, Lord, what is it that's, that, that needs to really infuse my soul from you so that six months from now, a year from now, we are thanking you, thanking you that, just like Keith was saying, that Frontiers doesn't want to build on the work of another man. What is there, something new for abundant life that if we weren't here doing it, it would not get done? That's the question to ask. To go out, to go out and say, Lord, what is that? I'm thankful that God is bringing people here. But a church isn't, you know, it's not like a sea enemy that just stays attached to a rock and catches stuff that goes back and forth on a tide pool. It goes out. It's a sending organization. It knocks on doors. It says, welcome to the neighborhood. It's, you're in your neighborhood. Welcome. I'm, I'm your neighbor. Just to start to build those relationships. So that's an example. Maybe it becomes a calling. We'll see as we pray, as you pray. But I don't know what that is. But I do want us to be think, thinking about what is it that God wants us to rebuild in your lives individually, in whatever organizations you're a part of. And for us as a church, and see progress. Some of you are already seeing progress. That had to be encouraging to everybody that was rebuilding, wasn't it? We're seeing some progress. We're seeing people come forward to lead a Bible study for wives. We're seeing people come forward to start to help in other places. There's a person sent us an email earlier this week about, hey, maybe I can be part of a couple's study, a Bible study for couples. That's great. So bit by bit, we're seeing that. Thank God for that. Some of you are perfectionists out there. I know it. And it's until you get to the summit, you know, you're not going to be happy. And let me just tell you, the summit's a long hike, and it can be hard. You've got to stop along the way and look out over the vista from time to time and go, wow, you know, when we started, we could only see trees. Now I can look out, I'm, I'm 2,000 feet up, and I can see the valley floor, and I can see some foothills. Then I get another two, 3,000 feet up, and I can start to see mountaintops over there. And eventually, if I keep going because God's given me a team, and I keep going because I know he's called me to it, and I keep going because I'm encouraged by the progress, I will get to that place that he's always ordained me to get to. I will get to the top of what he's calling to me to get to. I will have those walls rebuilt, not because I did it, but just because I was faithful. I don't know what that is for us completely. I don't know what that is for you, but I want us to be just embracing that. So let me close with these questions. For your time in your small group, for your time of meditation, here they are. Where do you need to start taking an honest look to survey damage in your life? Either damage you caused or damage other people have caused, but you've been holding back from taking an honest look. You've been, for whatever reason, just saying, I don't want to go there. But you know what? You're not going alone. Where do you need to survey the damage? Take the Lord with you. That's the first area. First question. Second question. Pray for team members to help you. Say, Lord, who are you bringing alongside of me? Who's going to help me in this? Who's going to help me in junior high? Who's going to help me with this Bible study? Who's going to help me with this outreach? If you've called me to do it, you haven't called me to do it by myself. Please, Lord. Who, is, who are you calling to help me? Lord, whose team are you calling me to be on? Number three, look for progress. Lord, maybe I've just been focused on the stuff that hasn't gone on in my life. Maybe I'm, I'm like, the glass is three quarters full, but all I can focus on is the quarter that's empty. Lord, where do I need to see your progress? 
Or, Lord, where do I need to see your breakthrough? I just need your patience. I just, I just, not my patience. I'm out of my patience. I need your patience. So where do you need to see progress? Survey the damage. Ask for the team. Look for progress. If we do these things, because this is what Nehemiah is doing, we'll be in a different place. We'll be in that rebuilt place, that restored place that God has for each of us, that God has for us as a church. I pray we take it to heart in the weeks ahead. Amen? Amen.